Hey, uh, good morning. Welcome to the Brook uh, Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Ukebu. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for joining us wherever you're joining us from. Special welcome to Restoration Homestead, uh, who is joining, the entire church is joining us uh, this Sunday, and we are grateful for that, man. Y'all are amazing, a strong force of the gospel here in Miami. Um, and we are fans of you guys. We have benefited from you guys personally, um, as well as corporately as a church. And we're um, honored that we could serve you guys in this way. In fact, um, if you're joining with us and you're not part of Restoration, um, but you live in the Homestead area, you wanna Google them. Um, a link to their um, website will be in the chat wherever you're joining us from. Um, man, they're amazing. Additionally, and if this is your first time, then thank you again for giving of your Sunday uh, to connect with us and, and hopefully God moves in your heart and moves you closer to his. If this is your first time, we wanna connect with you. And so uh, please in the chat, wherever you are um, joining us from Facebook um, or YouTube, um, there's a connect card for you that we wanna connect with you and find out what's going on in your life and connect you to the life of the church as well. And, and also if, if you have young children and you haven't been able to engage yet with Canvas Corner, that link is is in the chat as well. Um, and it provides just an experience and content ongoing to engage our children in this moment. If you have a Bible, meet me in the book of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. It's a very famous story. Uh, man, I, <laughs> I heard it before I even knew Jesus. Oh, there was that guy, he got swallowed by a fish. Uh, but hopefully it would go from just being a story that we've heard about to a story that transforms our heart after our time. We're still in this series, uh, Hide and Seek, where we've been looking at the various ways we run and hide from God, escapist behaviors, if you will, and the various ways in which God comes and pursues us. He is a God who pursues. He's a God of love. And because there's love in his heart, it moves him to action. God pursues. And so today we're actually going to make a pivot where the last few weeks have been heavy on the escapist behaviors. This week, we're going to close the escapist behaviors just by looking at that story of Jonah and this man who ran from God for a particular reason. And then following weeks, we're going to be looking at the God who pursues, the God who is, and taking some deep dives into the various ways God uniquely pursues us, whether it's leaving breadcrumbs that we could follow, whether it's confronting us compassionately, whether it's loving us ferociously, whether it's laying down in his life, whether it's being still with us, sitting with us in trauma. There's so many ways that God pursues us and we're gonna look at several of them following this week. The reason why we thought this would be a good pivot is because of the richness that Jonah's story affords. But man, as rich as it is, it also has this capacity to ruin the heart because there's just some stuff in there that's just quite, quite honestly, it's pretty heartbreaking. What caused Jonah to run should cause us to mourn, especially in our moment in time. And so I, I say that to say there may be some things that, that may feel a little bit more sensitive for you and that's okay. But what you should take from that is the reality that, that all of scripture speaks to all of life. 
that God's word is relevant to every fabric of our beings and every fabric of our lives. And there's so many questions that just rise from Jonah's story. But one of the chief questions is when me and God disagree, what happens next? When there's a disagreement between God and me, what comes next? Do I move in a way that says, God, I don't understand, but make this make sense to me? Or do I move in a way that says, I don't understand, so I'm going my own way? When me and God disagree, what comes next? Jonah, <laughs> Jonah shows us that it's easy to say, well, I'm going to go my own way. But again, his rationale and his reason for doing so should cause mourning in our hearts. So we're going to cover the entire story. There's a lot to cover, but we're going to look at specifically uh, chapter three, verses one to chapter four, verse four. And as we as we move through the text and move through our time, really what we'll see is there's a central message that rises to the top of this story. But before we get there, we're going to see some of the complementary truths that support it, that, that, that build it out, that bring weight to it, that become application points of it. Then we'll look at the central message and then we'll see this crossroads, if you will. And then we'll close, honestly, with what I hope is hope <laughs> and also a caution. So uh, Jonah chapter three, read with me. It's about uh, two minutes of reading. So don't <laughs> don't tune away. Uh, verse one, it reads like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah uh, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I'll tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Uh, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They, they called for fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious. You are gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? The story of Jonah is often told in an inflated way. And so the story of Jonah is told where the lion's share of the story orients around a fish. The fish in Jonah, if you're familiar with it, we're going to get there. It has three verses at max. The lion's share of Jonah is not what's occurring in the fish. The lion's share of Jonah, what comes to the top is this tension in his heart that's running contrary to the heart of God. But there's a lot of truths that rise alongside that. Truths that are necessary to identify because they really, again, they bring weight to what's taking place here. One truth that rises alongside this central message is this idea that all people everywhere are accountable to God. So even in what we just read, you see Jonah going to this city and he is announcing judgment. He is announcing this message that, that God is saying, turn from your ways, turn from your evil and violent and wicked ways and turn to me, the God who is. Now think about this. They were just living their lives. They had no clue that in living their lives, they would be held accountable by a God. But God comes in through Jonah and says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is contrary to the law I've put on your heart. And you should know that there should be some general stuff around you that awakens you to your actions. But you need divine intervention to know me. You need divine intervention to have an understanding of the world around you. You need divine intervention to have an understanding of the world inside you. I'm sending a messenger. But before the messenger came, they were still accountable. Christians believe that accountability isn't tied to awareness. It's tied to existence. It's tied to the fact that God is who he says he is and has created all things self-included. And he has a plan and a purpose for all things self-included. And we go astray from that plan and that purpose from all things. And we're accountable. And so what rises to this is this, is this reality that all people everywhere are accountable to God. But another thing that rises alongside um, this central message that we're going to get to is, is not just that all people everywhere are accountable to God, but it's God's care, concern, and power for and over all things. Like God has unique, intentional, special care and concern and then exerts power 
for and over all things. What's fascinating is if you get to the end of this story, it, it ends with, 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 with God rebuking Jonah because like we saw, Jonah did what God told him to do, but he ended up very angry, exceedingly displeased, frustrated, grieving, lamenting. And then he, he ends with this conversation with him. And at the end of that conversation, God says this, yo, there's, there's 120,000 people in Nineveh that don't know their left from their right. Now, that's not to quantify how many people are actually in the city. It says that it's a three days journey to cross the entire city. I did the math to go from the, the, the most southern point of South Florida to the most northern point of South Florida would only take about 42 hours walking. So this is a three, this is a massive city. But the idea of 120,000 not knowing their left from their right is this idea that there's this, there's this group of people who, who have not reached the age of maturity. They're under the age of 13. So he's like, man, this is a city that's so large and it's filled with children and I care about them. But he says they don't just have 120 people, they have cattle as well. God, God identified unique care for cattle. This is Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every square inch, God says mine, and every square inch, God says I care about it. We got, sin has entered into our world. It has ravaged God's design. And it's easy to talk about sin on the human level. But sin doesn't just stain the soul. It stains creation. This is why Romans says that all creation is groaning eagerly, waiting to be renewed, waiting to be freed from the stain of sin. This is why Revelation will ultimately say that I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down, transforming the world that we're in. Because God cares about all things and he has power over all things. And so, so in the beginning, Jonah, Jonah's gonna go his own way. God is gonna send a storm. Jonah's gonna get tossed into the sea. God is gonna send a fish. He cares and con has concern over all things. And he has power over all things as well. There's, there's another truth that just rises from Jonah um, to the surface of this story. It complements what's, what's central. It's this amazing grace in the midst of atrocious disobedience. Amazing grace in the midst of atrocious disobedience. If you look at Jonah chapter two, you have the prayer of Jonah. Man, it is a rich prayer. In fact, it's gonna be our benediction at the end, don't leave. It's full of theological precision, unfolding attributes of God. And what's fascinating is Jonah's words communicate that he understands that him being in the belly of a fish is grace. He says that the waters were crashing over me. I was drowning, 
The seaweed was at my head. Yet you rescued me when I cried out to you. You gave me grace. How did Jonah get into the ocean? Because he ran from God. God said, go and announce this message because the evil of this great city has risen to me, but I want to, I want to care for them. I want to bring them into relationship with me. I do not want to cast them aside. I want to carry them into my heart. Go tell them. Jonah says, no, he runs away. Disobedient. Yet God pours out amazing grace. Amazing grace in the midst of tremendous disobedience is the hope that melts the heart. Because it says we don't have to get it all right or figure it all out before God steps in to help. There's another truth that rises to the surface. It, it actually is seen in his prayer and in Jonah 4, verse 4. It's this truth that is unsettling to me. It's this truth that should be unsettling to you. It's this idea that we can articulate truth well, yet still apply it poorly. We could, we could have the greatest academic definition of truth regarding God, yet still apply it poorly. All throughout Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, He's just laying out bombs. God, you control all of this. God, you are gracious. God, you hear me when I cry. God, you have salvation in your hands and your hands alone have it. God, you are powerful. He is just articulating all of this rich, beautiful truth. And then you get to the end after he wakes up and responds back to the word of God rightly by obediently acting on what God says. He says in John, Jonah 4.4, God, this is why I fled. This is why I left. I left because I knew that you were a God who was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting, turning away from disaster. I knew that you were a God that delighted in mercy, not judgment. I knew it. I knew that you were a God who was patient. And so even if I didn't make it all across the city, which he didn't, he got a day's journey in and the message was so powerful, so potent, so, so well received that it spread without him. I knew that if I didn't make it the whole way because you're patient, that you would wait for people to come to know you and respond. I knew these things. I could articulate these things, but to apply them, that's a whole nother story. My application of the truth that I knew was poor. I could articulate it well, but I applied it poorly. 
It's an endeavor that's so easy for us. And you know why? You know, I think it's, that's the case. Let me, let me explain it like this. So <laughs> one of the things I love about living in Miami is the fact that there's mango trees and coconut trees everywhere. And again, you know, I, just, I, I joke around, but you know, if you have to go to the store to buy mangoes, you may need to know if you have friends or not. Like evaluate your friend circle because everybody knows everybody that has a mango tree. It's like seven degrees from Kevin Bacon, right? Seven degrees from a mango tree or a coconut tree. So anywho, so we, we hope to move buy a house closer uh, to the building here in little, little Haiti. And I've been plotting in this COVID space. I'm like, I wonder if I could just chop my tree down and then take it to wherever I move. And so I've done research on it, you know, because I was like, I could just take a seed from this and plant it in the ground. That seems like it would take a long, a long time. So I, could I just chop it down and transplant it? Is that, is that, is that a viable option? It turns out it is. It turns out that you could kind of semi-graft trees and you got to wait a while before, you know, it, the fruit blooms, but you could do it. And it, it's a shortcut than actually having to take the seed and plant it into the ground and let it grow from there. The way we treat truth in most Christian spaces is like the way that I would move my coconut tree. I wouldn't spend time planting seeds in the ground and letting it grow naturally, I would artificially rig it so that I could benefit from it quicker. The word of God, which is the container of truth, is a seed that burrows deep into our hearts. But often in our Christian spaces, we just parrot people that, that sound good, that talk well, that are more articulate, that are more compelling, and we just take tweetables and quotables and then we, we attach them to our hearts as if that's the same as having the truth of God go deep inside our souls. And when doing so, all we show is that we could repeat words well, but not reproduce fruit that changes. And if I may, what I've noticed is that repeating words well, articulating truth well, but then applying truth poorly is the very heart of hypocrisy. And hell is filled with stories of people whose hearts have been hardened by Christian hypocrisy. That they've seen a disconnect between what people who represent Jesus say and then how they go about and apply what they say. It doesn't remove accountability. Again, all people everywhere are accountable, but it should cause us to be a little bit more concerned and thoughtful with the way that we engage with truth, that we see truth as not a tool that we use to, to, to act, but, but it's a seed that's planted in our hearts to transform. And then the fruit from transformation is love. All of these rise to the surface, but they supplement the central weight, which is attention, 
He ran because he did not want certain type of people to receive the mercy of God. In Jonah's mind and heart, there were certain people who should have been excluded from receiving God's heart, receiving God's mercy, receiving God's compassion. Now, his rationale isn't weird. Like, the Assyrians were not great people. In fact, they didn't just march across the known world at that time conquering. They marched along the known world at that time colonizing. So they would take over a place and they wouldn't just subjugate the people. They would subjugate the people's cultures. They would say, you can't believe this anymore. You need to assimilate forcibly into our way of life. Not only that, not only did they just take over, they tortured. Like, like Assyrian kings would, would have the bodies of of, of their victims flayed, skinned alive, and then hung as a deterrent of what would happen if you didn't fall in line with the Assyrian way. They were wicked. They were wicked. Now, historically, where Jonah is intersecting with them is them in a weakened state. These wicked people were in a weakened state. And it's, it seems to, to be that in their weakened state, though they were more violent, they were also more open to receive from God. God sends him. And Jonah's like, you want me to do what to who? No. But the central message that is undeniable is this. God's heart isn't just for those we deem as us. It's for those we see as them. God's heart isn't just for those we deem as us. It's for those we see as them. Jonah's ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is an anthropological term that communicates when your, your ethnicity, your culture becomes central above all other people's cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and heritages. And you start to interact with them in a way that diminishes who they are inherently. Ethnocentrism. Jonah's ethnocentric worldview was contrary, contrary to the covenant God made with the people of God, Israel. Genesis 12, God calls out this man, Abram, and he says, I am going to bless you uniquely. I am going to grow your family. I am going to grow your people. You, 
count the stars in the sky. You can't. That's how numerous that your family is going to be. I'm going to bless you. There's going to be this unique relationship that you're going to have with me, Abram. Just walk with me. Walk with the relationship with me. Receive it. But I am going to bless you so that through you, the nations will be blessed. The globe will be transformed. The globe will be able to enter into the relationship that I have with you uniquely. Exodus picks this up where, where he, he is going to commission the people, like, like remind them of their identity. And he's going to say the same thing. You are to me a kingdom of priests. To, to be a holy nation set apart, interceding on behalf of the world. Jonah's paradigm that said only a certain group of people were worthy of receiving mercy was incongruent with the God he claimed to know. Central message is that God's heart isn't just for those we deem as us. It's for those we see as them. Jesus modeled this heart wonderfully. He embodied it, but then he expressed it in an amazing way that becomes a model, reaching over cross-cultural social barriers for the sake of someone having life. Even in Matthew, he's going to mention this story and the way he mentions it is fascinating. He is going to say the men of Nineveh are going to rise against this generation in judgment because the message was simple and they repented. They, they turned from their hearts because they were like, wait, there's a God who cares about me? And I'm accountable to him. And they turned. And it came from this man, Jonah, this reluctant missionary. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus modeled it wonderfully. Nevertheless, every human will have what the text, I think, identifies as Joppa moments. Joppa is an interesting space. It's a port city. And so port cities become hubs to a variety of places. And when your city is a hub to a variety of places, your city becomes a home to a variety of people. So Joppa was this diverse city, yet Jonah went there to run to run away from God, to, to get on a ship and flee to Tarshish. I got to get away from the, the call of God. I got to get away from his word. I got to get away from what he's asking me to do. There's a conflict with my heart, with what he's asking me to do and what I really want to do. Me and God are disagreeing, so I'm doing my own thing. And at Joppa with Jonah, ethnocentrism ruled the day. But then you get to Acts 10 and, and we're at Joppa again. But instead of Jonah, it's Peter. It's one of the disciples that walk with Jesus. And Cornelius, this, this, this God-fearer from Caesarea and Philippi, he, he's worshiping God. He, he has a, a word from the Lord that says, yo, 
today your arms have reached to heaven. Go send for this man, Peter, at Joppa. At the same time that this is happening, Acts 10 is such a fascinating scripture. At the same time as this is happening, Peter is sitting on this roof in Joppa, getting a vision from the Lord where a, a sheet is descending from heaven and there's all sorts of animals on it, reptiles, etc. And this word from heaven says, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, nah, not me. My lips have never touched anything that's unclean, which is probably not true. And God from heaven says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Peter confused. He gets up. He starts walking as he's walking. The men that were sent for him see him. They have a conversation. It's a crossroads, if you will. Peter, not ruled by ethnocentrism in that moment, went with them. And as he went with them, he saw something glorious. His words, now I see that salvation is for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's a powerful moment. All of us regularly have those Joppa type moments where we find ourselves at cross-cultural crossroads. <laughs> will we be ruled by ethnocentrism or ruled by something better is the question. The gospel, the story of God, the very heart of God, his activity and work to pull a people from all people compels us to be ruled by something better. I want to close with this. This text offers some stunning hope, but also a sobering caution. The stunning hope is that at every single turn, you just see the faithfulness of God. You see this glorious diamond, this, this just majestic jewel of God's faithfulness on the backdrop of human frailty. You see his faithfulness showing up as power and tenderness. There's a people who are accountable to me. They don't know it, but I want them. Jonah, go. Jonah says no. God doesn't eliminate him. He still pursues him. Jonah is drowning. God rescues him. Jonah finally obeys. He rescues the people through Jonah's words. He still uses him. Jonah is angry. God doesn't do away with him. Instead, he comforts him and still teaches him the faithfulness of God at every turn. It's stunning because it's not tied to my ability. It's tied to the centrality of God's heart, which is for love. Stunning hope that God is faithful even when we aren't. God is faithful even when we can't see it, Ninevites. God is tender even when we don't know. Stunning. 
but there's a sobering caution. And I want to speak to a particular group of people right now, to the marginalized and oppressed, to those who don't find themselves at the seats of power in society. There's a sobering caution for you and for me. In this story, what has been rocking me and frustrating me is that Jonah would fall into the category of marginalized and oppressed. That the people of Israel, they were oppressed and marginalized people in the universe, in the world. Yet, his heart was not ruled by mercy, it became calloused. And history shows us that it's easy to have a callous heart. So as a sobering caution, if you find yourself in a space where it seems like you're at the whims of everybody else, be careful of a callous heart that shows up as desiring retaliation more than restorative justice. That's the caution. Jonah said, they could go to hell for all I care. I'm going to Tarshish. Let them die in their sin. Wicked. Would it not be said of those who are hurting and find themselves at the margins? Because hope for those in the margins isn't actually to move from a space of being marginalized to a seat of power. It's to find God in the midst. It's to see that there's a God who sits with people who are vulnerable and forgotten. It's to see that God is attentive and all powerful and he cares about all things. Here's this plant to provide shade for you. It's to see that God cares not about all things in the here and now, but about all things in the world to come. So let me not just provide shade for your body. Let me not just sit with you in this moment, but let me deal with your soul. It's to see the God who is. And to see his heart of mercy and love and be wrecked by it. Would that story move us closer to explore and know God, especially in moments where it seems like hypocrisy is dimming his beauty. Would you pray with me? Father, Jonah still has much to teach us. Would we soak in your word? Would we linger in stories in the scriptures? Would we allow your spirit to unfold the richness of your word and how it tells us about who you are, it tells us about ourselves, it tells us about the world around us? It awakens awareness to grow deeper affections. God, I pray that this week we would actually take a moment to just dig in Jonah and wrestle, wrestle with the idea that your heart 
Is it just for those we deem as us, but it's for those we see as them? How would we wrestle with that? Will we wrestle with the idea of whether or not we have a large enough view of your mercy, a large enough view of you, a large enough view of what you're doing in the world, in history, for your namesake. And would the point of wrestling bring us to a place of faith where, where you and I may disagree, God, where it feels like we are not on the same page. I don't go my own way. I go closer to your heart. Would that be true of us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.